0: Hello and welcome into Hockey Mountain High, your go to avalanche podcast, presented by Superbook Sports and Total Beverage in Thornton and Westminster. I'm your host, JJ Jerez, with me, Erev Dean of Mile High Sports and Peter Baugh of The Athletic, here to break down the Stanley Cup victory that was the Game Six win. Um, but first, guys, you know, the, the last time I saw either of you two, we were actually in the bowels of Amelie Arena. So I guess. How has the last week been for you guys? I mean, just simply, how have you guys been?
1: Things are good. Um, yeah, it's been a hectic, hectic few few days. I haven't slept all that much. Been a lot of work, but uh, but it's been fun, and yeah, it's been an exciting time.
2: I got back Monday early morning. Actually, Peter was on the same flight as me, and very early. Uh, very early flight. And uh, woke up Monday sick and spent forty eight hours in bed but I needed it. We're refreshed. We're ready to rock and roll. I can't believe it's been a week. It's been kind of a blur. Um, I thought it was June 3rd when I looked at my calendar till I realized, nope, we're already a month into the summer cause of the long run. So ready <laughs> to rock and roll with the off season.
0: Yeah. I had some sleep to catch up on as well. Um, I guess with that, you know, having it's now been seven days since that Stanley Cup victory. At, at what point did it sink in for you guys that like, wow, the avalanche actually did it here? Was it, was it early on? Was it shortly after the game or did it take a few days to set in?
1: I think it was probably when we were on the ice post game that it kind of sunk in for me. And I really like it, it was such a blur, just getting everything like the stories done and all that, um, that, but on the ice, when you see everyone just so happy and with the cup and holding it and. It's like, wow, they actually you see Nathan McKinnon crying and you're like, wow, they actually did it like this. This happened. So it felt like it was kind of the avalanche had been building to this point for a long time. And it, it felt fitting that this was the group that got them over the top with this core and these veterans that they brought in. It was it was a pretty perfect blend. And I I, I but I, I would say about probably an hour after the game ended.
2: So for me, it's kind of a little bit of a mixture of both because I felt the exact same way. Once the game ended, once I saw everybody kind of uh, like exhale, that's when it hit me that it was over Um, or like that they did it. But at the same time, it hasn't hit me that it's over. It's this very weird, strange feeling that like, JJ, you know, you've been watching this team for a lot. You know, you've been you've been covering this team for a lot longer than Peter and I. Uh, I've been watching this team for a long time. You've been watching this team for a long time. And it's this, this expectation that the season ends in one of two ways. It either ends with a jerseys off our back game, which means the Avalanche <laughs> did not make the playoffs, or it ends with a series loss. But there is this weird feeling in my head, because we've had it twice already in these playoffs, where it's like the Avalanche won their series, they're awaiting the next thing. But there is no next thing. Like, it's over. And I think it's not really going to hit me that the season is over. Like, it hit me that they did it. They won the Stanley Cup. I was at the parade. I saw Jared Bednar choking up while giving a speech, probably half drunk. Uh, I saw, you know, all the guys celebrating and all that. But it hasn't hit me that the season's over, and I don't think it really will until I see the first thing come across that says Nazan Kadri or Andre Burakovsky or Josh Manson or someone signs X amount of years in a different city. I think that's when it's going to hit me that the season is over. But in terms of winning the cup, that, that hit pretty quick on the ice.
0: Yeah, I'm with you. That that moment on the ice is probably, you know, hearing Gabe Landis got get choked up talking about EJ and, and just seeing the emotion like Peter pointed out. That's definitely when I think it really hit me. And, um, yeah, I mean, just covering that part was kind of hectic, right? Because it was our first go at covering an on-ice Stanley Cup championship. So it was kind of like all right, what do we do from here? Where do we go? Who who do we talk to? How do we approach this, uh, trying to make some content? So it was fun to figure it all out in the chaos and the jubilation. Um, and yeah, I, 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 still parts of me are like, all right, we're getting ready for practice here. Uh, yeah. when's, more, when's the next morning skate? But no. Um, but yeah, let's get into that celebration, right? The parade was awesome. I think... Uh, the turnout from the city of Denver was unreal. Uh, I love to see how many people got out there and and celebrated with the team. And what you saw at Civic Center was only a fraction of it, too, right? Think of all the people along the parade route that didn't quite make it all the way to Civic Center. So, um, yeah, I guess just talk about the the parade and the celebration there at Civic Center through your guys' eyes, because I know I stayed home. I watched it uh, on television. It seemed a bit hectic for me, but I know you guys were there. So what did you guys see? What was your favorite parts? And, And just break it down.
1: Yeah, well, I think Eric and I both watched from the same spot. We were kind of in front of the, the Civic Center, and they did brief access with Nazem Kadri and Bowen Byram. And, um, yeah, I think everyone was certainly elated, um, certainly really happy, and many of them very, 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 very drunk, uh, especially the Finns <laughs> and the French Canadians. I think those were the two. Holy
2: crap. Those Girard two Brayman. pairs. I mean,
1: Gerard was, he was so funny. He was, like, trying to conduct the crowd on when to clap. Um, and then Obey Kubel was was definitely enjoying himself.
2: Yeah, he was gone too, um, that's true. And
1: then the, the two Finns were both like, I mean, Mika Rantanen's on the stage joking about how the parade was, was bad for him and how he's not going to be able to speak English after it all was said and done. And yeah, it was pretty funny. And then Lachnan was they both were drinking beer out of their shoes, which they put back on their feet. And just like <laughs> ridiculous nonsense. Um, so yeah, they were definitely uh, enjoying themselves. And I think like, it's it's fun to be around people who are happy and excited, and so I think that was was kind of one thing I'll remember from that is just that there was a lot of a lot of joy there and a lot of uh, um, people definitely seeming to soak in the moment and they obviously earned it. This was a long time coming, like I said earlier, and and you just saw how much it it meant to all of them.
2: Gabe Landeskog was the highlight of the of the parade for me. That the ending, obviously, the part where they were given the speeches, because. The guy's already charming and when he's got a few drinks in him, he suddenly became even more charming. Like he's up at the microphone, like Alright, well you guys ever heard of Con Smythe? Well, let's talk about the best person on the planet or whatever he said about Kel McCarr. Or he went in there and he interrupted. They they you know, they had the lineup of guys that were gonna give the speech and they said it was gonna be EJ and Nate and Miko and Kale and, and Jared Bedner. Um I might be missing a player in there, but they uh, and obviously Landeskog himself, but Landeskog was kind of you know coming back and introducing each player that was coming up next, and then they finished all of the players and Alan Roach was about to go up there and do the next part of the celebration or the ceremony because he was the MC, and Landeskog just like cuts in his way, grabs the microphone and reads the crowd and introduces Nazem Kadri and has him give a speech too. Like it was just he was so charming, his introductions were great um i love the touch and i know that he got it from a fan but i love the touch of the swedish flag coming with that wrapped around his waist and then kind of holding it up with his uh with with the with the stanley cup when he took off his shirt just everything about the way that he conducted himself on that stage like you can tell he's had a few drinks in him but it wasn't goofy it was just like it was charming it was fun it was it was what you expect of a captain and someone who's kind of you know, front-facing in front of the cameras as, f- as much as he was. It, was. it was really cool and really awesome.
0: I mean, considering the youth of the team, I don't think it's surprising how they've been going rather hard here in this celebration, but at the same time, you know, we're so used to them being so rigid and so buttoned up. I mean, is it weird for you guys to see them in this light, right? I mean... I don't think we expected them to go this hard. I think we expected them to party, but I mean, Curtis McDermott falling over with the Stanley Cup oh race is a, is a next level thing. Are you were you guys anticipating this at all?
1: Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, you look at past cup celebrations, and uh, they're
0: getting wilder and wilder. The trajectory is on an upward. Yeah, trend. I think. Well,
1: I think it's starting to. to tri- I think the the parade and the day after were kind of the last gasp, but now it's starting to. Guys are starting to go home, and it's all over. But I definitely was expecting a bit of a bender from, from all of them. And so I, I wasn't too shocked.
2: And especially in, like, the first real celebration in two years. I mean, Tampa Bay had a couple of parades, but they kind of had them on – you know, they, they did the boat parade, you know, Stanley Cup boat parade repeat or whatever. Um, and I can't remember back to 2004 what they did, but I kind of feel like the boat parade was, you know, a thing that they had to do because of COVID where they couldn't go through the streets and have a million people there. So – um, in the first real Stanley cup. And this goes back to on the ice, having the families on there and everything, you know, that hasn't happened since 2019, having the media on the ice and doing all that. So I kind of feel like it was expected given the fact that number one, you won the Stanley cup. Uh, And number two, you know, we live in a world where there's cameras everywhere now. So like I'm hearing by the day, people that are telling me because they know I'm the hockey guy or like, Hey, yeah, the avalanche were at the bar I was at yesterday or so-and-so was crowd surfing, and I had my hand up when he was or whatever it is. So you can tell that they're they're enjoying the moment they're living in, and it's, it was kind of the expectation.
0: Yeah, to your point, half of my friends are getting uh, their videos posted on to Spittin' Chicklets, right, for all the parade moments or party moments going on. I feel like I know half the people that are getting the shout-outs there. Um, but let's get into the speeches. Yeah, I think oh, I think
2: the biggest thing really quickly that that caught me off guard was seeing – and we're going to talk about in the speeches, Kale McCarr, so lively. That's the one that still, like, you can tell Nathan McKinnon's the kind of guy that if he has a good time, and we saw it when they won the world championship, Team Canada a few years ago, him and Tyson Barry and O'Reilly were in the locker room doing their little thing. Uh, we've seen Landeskog win the world championship with Sweden and go for a, t- a go for a a swim in the jacuzzi with his full Swedish gear on. Um, so I've seen a lot of those guys celebrate and party Kel McCarr coming up to the microphone and screaming, what's up, Denver? Whatever he was screaming, that was new, and that was kind of, like, out of the
0: ordinary. Yeah, trying his hardest to uh, show his lighter side, right? But he he couldn't really do it, trying to crack a little joke there. So, yeah, let's get into those speech moments before we uh, wrap up the whole celebration and get into the series itself. Because I think we saw a lot of powerful moments, right? I think uh, Nazem Kadri being awed by the crowd was awesome. Obviously, Jared Bednar, I think, is everybody's favorite moment, getting choked up. Landis Gog dropping F-bombs, Kale McCarr. I guess which of the speech moments was your guys' favorite?
1: I think for me it was actually McKinnon, just how he just looked so happy and so at peace. And I think that that for me was maybe he didn't say anything particularly funny or like anything particularly notable. And he wasn't crazy expressive, but you could just tell just how happy he was. And I thought I thought that was cool to see. Cause I think as Sackick said, going into this, like McKinnon wanted this as bad as anyone. He, I think he would have felt like his career had a huge void in it if he had never gotten to this moment. And so I think you can just kind of like, when you listen to him talk and you see that smile and how authentic it was, I think you could really just tell how much this meant to him I don't want to say more than other guys, but maybe more than other guys.
0: I don't know. I feel like there was a little bit of self-deprecation in what he said when he said, well, I, I, I guess after finally
2: year, f- nine years, I finally yeah, won something. Yeah, he definitely right? harkened yeah, back my, my, to the – My ninth year and I finally won something, I guess. Yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah, he
1: definitely harkened back a little bit. But it wasn't like yeah. a crazy speech or anything. But I, I did just think he looked so happy. And I thought that was – for someone who's so intense, um, to see that I think was pretty eye-opening for me.
0: I'm with you 100%. Yeah, it looks it was, like it a, was a big relief. A huge weight has been lifted off of his shoulders, right? I mean, he even keeps saying, "I don't even know if we'll win it next year because it sounds like he plans on celebrating so hard because that goal, that hurdle was finally uh leapt for him and yeah, you could just you could just see it in his face. He's a different person all of a sudden.
2: I don't remember where he said it, but it was, "I'm going to get fat as shit this I summer." It was so it was I don't ESPN, a, I, think. I don't know about a repeat or whatever. Yeah. yeah. But That's I'll tell you why.
1: Can't training camps gonna roll around and it's still gonna be Nathan McKinnon like this guy is, he's, his uh his joy will last and I think he's gonna let himself feel it but this Nathan McKinnon isn't built to win one title and then relax like I think he's gonna want to keep keep going he might be more content or calmer or whatever now that he knows he at least will have the one but he's gonna he's he's still gonna be Nathan McKinnon
0: yeah, he's gonna have some ice cream, but you know, his version of himself being fat <laughs> is already more slender than any of us three already are, so I yeah. not worried Na- about it.
2: Nathan McKinnon, the only guy that's more shredded than him from what I remember from locker room access is Val Natchushkin, and that's because Natchushkin is literally a machine. <laughs> like, but yeah, no, you <clears throat> excuse me, you can just tell that there's uh there's a sense of relief to him, but you can like Peter said, like as soon as training camp comes around, not even training camp, as soon as summer training begins in the next coming weeks, whenever he gets back on the wagon and, you know, gets back to training, the hunger is there to do it again, and, and it's it's Nathan McKinnon. You know, year number 10, he's he's going to want it even more. Eric, your favorite speech moment? I would say I kind of just talked about it a little bit, but I would say Landis Scott going off script and bringing up Nazem Khadri. Um What I liked about that was the fact that it kind of – there was a sense to it. And you can tell throughout the playoffs, well, throughout the entire regular season, mostly in the playoffs with the St. Louis series and when everything that Kadri was becoming not even a bit, but like a really big fan favorite. And, you know, I think Alan Roach went up there and he even said, he said, we're going to hear from a lot of your favorite players. You're going to hear from Gabe, Nate, Miko, EJ and kale. And you can tell Gabe kind of read the room. Like, no, 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 we got to have Kadri speak. And, My favorite part about that was that it was off script. It was reading the room and giving the people what they wanted. And I actually genuinely loved Kadri's elation, kind of like what you and I were talking about post-game, game game six, that like when he raised the Stanley Cup, there was like such vigor and passion in the way he raised it. You can tell it meant so much to him. But he was doing this thing where every time he would come up to the mic, he was jumping like both his feet, like just pure elation, pure excitement, jumping up and down and – uh, what did he say? His tacky joke was like, you know, because it was kind of starting to sprinkle and almost rain. There was a little bit of thunder. He goes, thunder, lightning, it don't matter. We're coming with the avalanche. Ah, it, was, it was a terrible joke, but he was just having so much fun.
0: Yeah, he was really uh, just living it up in that role right i saw him so many times with his arms spread wide open almost like the the wrestler villain coming to the stage like let me hear you let me hear you soaking it in soaking it in he
2: he walked up the second time with you know or the first time when he was introduced with the with the hand to the ear like what he did in the st louis series um when he first went up to the microphone to speak when landis gogg introduced him he said i forget the word but it was kind of like are you guys kidding me with this like he was You can tell it wasn't scripted. It was like legit. He looked as far as the eye can see and saw people and was just like, holy crap.
0: Right. He had no idea there were that many uh, hockey fans in Colorado, did he? Um, All right. Well, let's take a quick break. That was fun. The celebration's over. Let's move on. But uh, let's talk about our friends over at Superbook Sports really quick. Summer is here, and there's no better time to make your first bet with Superbook Sports. Along with its usual vast betting menu, Superbook already has a lineup for every pro football game this fall. Plus, when you make your first deposit on the Superbook app or sign up at Superbook.com, they will match 100% of your money up to $500. It's never too early to start thinking about football at Superbook Sports. Place your bet and start winning today. Visit Superbook.com for terms and conditions. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-522-4700. And that, guys, brings us to the series itself, right? I think 4-2 to two win Avalanche taking it in game six, I think that's a, what a lot of people called, right? I mean, Arif, you and I both predicted that exact same thing. I know Greg Wyshynski was on that train as well. But I wanted to get into that sixth game. It, it felt almost predictable, right? We heard the comments from Miko Rantanen about how there was less pressure on the road. And, and, and in hindsight, it, you really let that sink in. You're like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So I guess, what do you? what's your guys' thoughts on... That sixth game being the one they get it done. Don't don't you feel like that was rather predictable in terms of you know where all the pressure was lying?
1: Yeah, I mean, look, that game could have gone either way very quickly. Like like it was a lot of these games were really close hockey games. Vasilevsky kept the Lightning close, and if Kucherov doesn't, I don't remember if he hit the post or what on that two on one. Like that game easily could have been. Tied. I think
2: he missed the net or. Yeah, something.
1: so I don't know if it was necessarily predictable i think going into the series i predicted abs in six but i do think there's a lot of there there were definitely moments where i was like the lightning scored first in that game and i was like oh shoot this game's probably going back to denver or this series is probably going back to denver and i i don't know how how the abs will respond to that because they've never been in a that high pressure of a situation and it didn't for a while it didn't look like they were responding particularly well but what stood out to me with this team was just the the not necessarily resilience between games. Cause let's face it. They didn't really face that. They, we kept saying they're going to get punched in the mouth at some point. They didn't really, they like hardly ever were. They were, they never trailed a series. Um, But I thought that I was um so impressed with their in-game resilience. Like so many times in this postseason, you saw them go down one, nothing and just completely unfazed. They were so comfortable. And I think that's, When I look at the differences between last year's team and this year's team, this is anecdotal, but it did feel like last year's team kind of, they had to score first and jump on them early um, or they were in trouble. And they definitely couldn't get down like two goals like they did against Edmonton. And uh, so, yeah, I was, I was really impressed with I guess the in in game resilience that they showed.
2: Yeah. I mean, in terms of, you know, getting punched in the mouth throughout the playoffs. Not only did they never trail, but the only time in the entire postseason that they were tied in a series, and I'm not talking 0-0, I'm talking anything above that, was 1-1 against the Blues. Because in every other series, they took a 2-0 lead. And then against the Blues and the Lightning, it was never 2-2. It was always 3-1. They never trailed in a series. And every time they started getting the series lead, they kept it the entire way except for that Blue series when it was 1-1 and that was quickly washed away with two victories on the road. But in the Tampa Bay series, I mean, what Peter just touched on, games four, five, and six were all special in that way. Game four, the Tampa Bay Lightning came out, played hard, took a one nothing lead. I think ended up taking a 2-1 lead. The Avalanche tied it, won it in overtime on Nazem Kadri's goal. Game five, you know, they lost, but trailed one nothing, trailed 2-1, always fought back, always had that in-game resiliency to get back in the game. And then game, game six, same thing, you know, After the first period, it looked like we're probably going to have a Game 7. But just like they did in Game 4, they came out in the second period, played much better, and uh, took over the game. And that third period of Game 6 had to have been the most picture-perfect hockey that a team has played to close out a series, like, ever. Especially given the circumstances. You're playing the Tampa Lightning. This is a team that never quits, is always is always fighting and is is always in, in, in the game, and, and you never know when they can strike. And they didn't get a shot for nine minutes, and when they did it was Ryan McDonough from center ice just to get Darcy Kemper alert and awake. And um, not only did the Avalanche shut it down defensively and really lock it down, but they did it with exciting play, with generating offense, with creating their own opportunities. And, like, you could tell by the time that third period was half over, like, is not going to score because they're not going to get any chances. Like, it was the least exciting goalie pull I've ever seen. They had nothing.
0: Right. Rather than playing not to lose, they went for the nail in the coffin, and that was uh, that was definitely fun to see and made for an entertaining third period. You're right. but And I know we've talked about this at nauseum, but Jared Bednar deserves so much credit for his ability to control the uh, professionalism in that room, right? The, the even kill mindset that we've talked about so much because – you guys are right. They, they, they'd they get down often, collect themselves during the first period of their mission, come out, and it was a completely different second period. And even in that Lightning series, they go up to nothing, and it looked like the Avalanche were in firm control of the series. It didn't look like the Lightning had any answers. Lightning come out and win game three. Avalanche were able to regroup and be like, all right, maybe this series isn't going to be as easy as we thought and come out and take game four with a commanding three, one series lead. So um, I think that was probably the turning point. I guess turning points is kind of where I want to go next. What, what do you feel the turning point of that Tampa Bay lightning series really was if, if it wasn't the uh, initial puck drop in, in game one?
1: Well, I think there's two that come to mind for me. One is the fact that they managed to win game one, because it looked like they were going to blow it. And I think that that was that game, after they took a 3-0 lead, it became a must-win game. You can't blow a game where Vasilevsky's off because he's not off very often, and and you can't, and they did. They made it 3-3, and it was like if all of a sudden if they lose that game, you've conceded home ice advantage to Tampa. You didn't take advantage of Vasilevsky when he wasn't 100%, and all of a sudden you're playing from behind for the first time in the postseason. So I thought Andre Barkowski's
2: goal was huge
1: early in that series.
2: Yeah, and can I predict number two because this one's got to be an easy one. Yeah. It, sure. was, it was the cadre goal in game four.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely.
2: The two overtime goals, basically. Those and honestly,
1: actually, goals. weirdly, it wasn't the cadre goal. It was the Nico Sturm-Andrew Cogliano goal. Because that's when yeah. things shifted for – that's when – although, I guess Tampa did have a push at the end of the third. But, like, I thought that goal kind of gets forgotten. But that was such a huge goal, a fourth-line goal when they desperately needed something. And it was Nico Sturm who had the shot that yes, it went off Andrew Cagliano's leg, but it was essentially Nico Stern's goal. I thought that was...
2: And, and they, entered, they entered the third period trailing by a goal against Tampa Bay in Tampa Bay and, and, and managed to get a goal from their fourth line. Like, that's, that's a huge... But it was game four. You know, you, you were talking about it during the game that game four is always the, the turning point of the series. It's when a team either fights back and makes it two to two or another team takes a commanding lead. And, you know, during that overtime, you could tell, like, this is going to be such a huge goal like this next goal is going to matter so much and i think it went 11 minutes or 10 minutes before kadri finally ended it but that's 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 got to be it for me was that moment
0: yeah and there it was the same story as, as uh, game 6 right they during overtime the avalanche shut them down didn't really let
2: tampa bay even create many chances at all
1: yeah they really tightened up at points
2: i'd really like to they go can... back i'd really like to go back real quick throughout the entire postseason even the game that they lost when tyler Bozak scored and look at the shot differential and chance differential for every overtime game the Avalanche played because they had to have outshot teams like 35 or 40 to 10 in overtime periods.
1: Yeah. And, I mean, even in yeah, St. Louis, they had good chances before the Bozak goal too, I think. I think Byram had a really good luck at one point.
0: Yeah. Byron was unreal throughout the playoffs. I don't think he's getting enough credit, especially from the players, right? I saw him calling all the guys out during the parade like, oh, Kale McCarr's here. Nazim Kadri, Bowen and Byram had a lot to do with that. I wish they would have acknowledged him a little more. But um,
1: I think Bo and Byram had plenty of fun.
0: Oh yeah, yeah he, he had a good time from especially from uh, the cop thinking he's just a regular fan, right? All yeah, the way I mean, to uh, just why get rowdy. acknowledged
2: when you're a player? Is where the cop in the city had no idea who the hell you were. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, so I guess with that, you know, we all know Kale McCarr won the Con Smythe. If we know you had a vote in it, Peter. Did, did you have a vote in it as well? Arif let us all know. I did, yeah. Yeah, um, I guess with that... <laughs> Arif has let everybody know. <laughs> with that, um, you know, obviously he was the uh, MVP in everybody's eyes. Would you say that he was the MVP of that final series as well? And uh, I guess if not, who would you give that secondary um, MVP to from the Avalanche?
1: I think he still was. I don't think Kyle McCarr was necessarily his best self in that final series. Like, he was still really freaking good, but... There were moments where he maybe wasn't quite games. Like he had a few turnovers that like the, the one in game six was pretty bad that led to the first goal. So maybe, but he still was logging so much ice time that I think it still was him. Um, Honestly, I mean, you, you mentioned it earlier. I thought Byron was in a lot of ways, the secondary MVP of that series for the avalanche. If you look at it, he led that entire series in five on five ice time. And when he was on the ice during those minutes, the Avs absolutely dominated in shots there's a reason plus minus is a misleading statistic but there's a reason he led uh the playoffs in plus minus like he was excellent 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 and then i think you have to obviously nathan mckinnon and was was unreal especially in game six he was he looked like a man on a mission and that's how teammates have described him and that's exactly how he played so i think those are the ones that that come out in my head
2: And, and let, me, let me continue from there. Um, you know, you talked about Bowen Byram. You talked about Nathan McKinnon. Uh, Gabe Landeskog had a good hand in the series, especially early on. He was getting some crucial goals there. Uh, Val Nachushkin, I think Landeskog ended the series with three goals all in the first three games. Val Nachushkin had some big plays in there. Miko Rantanen quietly putting up eight points in the first four games before going pointless in games five and six. Uh, Darcy Kemper hanging in there, as silly as that sounds, like – Basically, what I'm trying to get at in listing all of these names is they just they had a full team effort like Kale McCarr didn't need to be above and beyond above the rest. What I thought was really fascinating about the Avalanches series, about the Avalanche Stanley Cup playoff run as a whole. And this is something you and I talked about, I think, a little bit, JJ, is they did it in such a different fashion than what we've seen in the past. Number one, they did it with a goalie that had a 902 save percentage, and he only climbed back into the 900s in that Game Six victory. And obviously, he won 10 games. The other goalie had won six, uh, but I don't think Frankie was that much better. I think he was a 908. If I wanna, if I wanna predict, I think it was a 908 in the playoffs. But they did it without a goalie. <coughs> they did it without. A, I'm still over it. it's coming out coming out of that cough from the Stanley Cup final, but. They, they did it without a goalie that dominated. They did it without a goalie that they drafted and developed. And they did it without a big-name superstar uh, forward, I should say, dominating the heck out of the games. Like, they didn't have Kucherov with 30-something points. They didn't have Nathan McKinnon in past seasons where he's got, like, eight goals and seven assists and 12 games or whatever, and then everybody else is kind of below him. All of the forwards by committee. Gabe Landeskog had 11 goals, 11 assists. McKinnon had a couple points more than him. Nuchushkin, I think, was up around 10 goals. Kadri, before his injury, was up at a point per game. Miko Rantanen, I just listed a bunch of guys. Miko Rantanen led the forwards in points. So, like, it was a very by committee playoff run. And that's not to take away from Kel McCarr, But in that final series specifically, that's how I saw it. I saw a lot of guys pulling their weight.
1: Yeah, I will say, though, that I don't know if I fully agree with, like, the no. Nathan McKinnon scored at fifty three goal pace the entire playoffs. So
2: Yeah, but, I, but in, in past playoffs, what has he had?
1: Again, he, he never played there? in the he never played in the conference finals of the Stanley Cup. Like it's easy to say that because yeah. he had I mean, look at his numbers against Nashville that these playoffs. Like it's it's I think that Nathan McKinnon's numbers were definitely inflated in past I mean, he was excellent in past playoffs, but it helped that he was playing the he, he didn't play in the conference finals or the or the Stanley Cup where the defenses got a little tighter. Because, yeah. I mean, if you look at these playoffs, first round against Nashville, he had um, five goals in four games. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, he he was still doing that. It was just then when you play some of the more stout defensive teams that your numbers go down a bit, which you're going to play those the farther you get in the playoffs.
2: Yeah. And I'm not taking away from his performance. He was incredible. The biggest number for me with Nathan McKinnon, that's just so ridiculously eye popping is 117 shots. Like second place on the team had 72. He was far in away the like the generating the most and, and creating the most. Um, but the kind of the point that I'm getting at isn't that he hasn't, he wasn't good or like he wasn't his dominant self. It's that a lot of guys had those moments. Like, Gabe Landeskog coming off of, you know, sitting the last two and a half months of the season or whatever it was, 11 goals, 11 assists in 20 games. Like, holy crap, great performance. Val Nichushkin had nine goals. Kadri, obviously, 15 points in 16 games, uh, but not much of a, in a very limited role, we'll say, in the Stanley Cup final. It just seemed like, like Devontae's five goals, 15 points in 20 games. It just seemed like everybody was able to elevate to that level rather than what we saw last year where, you know, guys played well. Rantanen and had a lot of goals, but Nathan McKinnon was way up here or in the bubble where like Nathan McKinnon was way up here, Kadri and Burakovsky burst, but there was a separation. So it looked like a lot of guys were up there and it's just funny. They play on different lines. This playoffs, there was the constant changes of the lines, but it was still McKinnon, Rantanen and Landeskog, not in that order, Rantanen, McKinnon and Landeskog that led the charge offensively um, and, and, you know, led the team.
0: I think it's an obvious testament to the strength of the group around them too, right? I mean, Nathan McKinnon doesn't have to carry as much weight, but I think what we saw this playoffs, and I, I've already put this out there in the public once, but you saw the guys, the core guys, the Nathan McKinnons, Landis Gogs, Kale McCars set the set the path early, right? They would take care of. Uh, goal scoring, they'd get one uh, maybe early in the first, second period. And then in the third periods, late in the games, when you needed it most, you saw more of the depth guys show up. That's when you saw the Caglianos. That's when you saw Darren Helm in St. Louis, right, Val Nachushkin, even, you know, like Nazem Kadri, not necessarily a depth guy. But what I'm saying is the core guys really paved the way. And then the, the, the fresher guys, maybe even some of the trade deadline acquisitions, are the ones that cleaned up the rest.
1: Yeah, Arturi And that's Lekinen. the recipe for winning in the playoffs. Yep.
2: Arturi mm-hmm. Lekinen, eight goals, six assists. Barely talked about him right now. Listen to all those names. Four game winning goals. Like he had a fourth of the game winning right. goals. Josh Manson, like his offensive production, he had three goals in the playoffs. Like this is a guy that rarely scores three goals in a regular season. Uh, in a full regular season and has only done it, you know, this past year for the first time since uh, since 2018, I want to say, and he had three in the playoffs. So he, just everybody was pulling their weight.
1: Yeah, I mean, and, and big goals for Manson too.
2: Yeah, overtime. I winner think he one had
1: point. one overtime winner against Edmonton. It was, I think, to make it 2 nothing. It, it was all when the game was in one within one goal that he scored all his goals.
2: His overtime winner—he had a goal against Tampa Bay. I remember that in the first game, or in the seven. Yeah, 7-0 and that game. was, it was
1: the seven. It was the second goal of the seven nothing
2: game. Yes, that's what it was. Uh, his overtime winner was that Edmonton, or was that St. St. Louis? Louis? Game one. That was St. Louis. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Hell of a series from that guy, and he's probably going back. Well, not going back. Maybe going back to Anaheim, but he's probably not coming back. But hell of a series from that guy. Like, just such a great addition.
0: I mean, looking back to the trade deadline, right, I I remember feeling after it was all said and done, like, man, these moves from Joe Sackett feel a little bit excessive. Like, this team was already really great, and he went and made four new additions to the everyday lineup. So, um, I mean, they kind of, I wouldn't say breezed through the playoffs, but it looked pretty easy. Do you think Joe Sackett kind of created even a, a deeper recipe for the rest of the league to emulate? Like, hey, make more moves during the trade deadline? Or do you just think they were just such good moves that, no, no, no.
2: that yeah. that's more important? Yeah, It's not the more moves. It's the right moves.
1: And like, you saw that with Tampa the past few years. They yeah. made the right moves. Yeah. I mean, like, Florida made a ton of moves this deadline. Yeah. They didn't work Florida,
2: out. Florida went out and got the two, let's call them the sexiest names, the big name on forwards and the big name on defense in Claude Giroux and Ben Sherat. You know, Ben Sherat's not a, not a light-your-lamp kind of player, but everybody was talking about this guy. Uh, the Avalanche made the right moves, and that's kind of what we're going to see Joe Sakic do throughout the next couple years, especially this off season. It's not going to be about going out there and signing. Again, I'll use his name Claude Giroux, or or you know Johnny Goudreau or Philip Forsberg. It's going to be going out there and and finding the next Val Nichushkin, finding the next defenseman that you're like, what's this guy going to do? And suddenly he's you know as effective as Josh Manson was, or something like that. So. It's about making the right moves, and that's what they made it. I mean, they paid a hefty price. Justin Barron and Drew Hellison, like, those are two big defensive core prospects that this team had that, you know, elevated their prospect core. And they're both gone, along with a couple second-rounders, and, and for good reason. Arturi Lekinen and Josh Manson were massive parts of this of this playoff run.
0: Yeah, so, I mean, we've talked about Kemper's importance. I guess looking into the off season here, what do you guys think uh, is the right move for him? Is he somebody that you think that the Avs need to keep around to kind of keep that uh, position stable? Does he Did he prove throughout this uh, playoff run that he might be a little bit expendable? What, what's your guys' stance on the polarizing Darcy Kemper?
1: Well, I don't think he's necessarily expendable just because i don't think you look at the goalie options out there and there's not that many out there like it's it is not a it, it's not like the abs are going to have an easy time fighting another goalie and it's not i don't think pavel franco's performance in like game four obviously he played great at the beginning of the edmonton series but like that wasn't a super inspiring performance in throughout the the playoffs you can't go into a season with him as your number one so if you don't bring back kemper who are you looking at are you looking at Ville Husso, who has only played like 50 career NHL games, if that? Are you looking at uh, Marc-Andre Fleury, who's been benched in the playoffs two years in a row and who's coming off a statistically pretty mediocre season? Are you looking at Jack Campbell, maybe, like who I think I heard on 32 Thoughts is Edmonton linked him? Like, there's not a ton of options. So... I don't think Kempers is expendable. I also think that there probably is a price that you have to walk away from him at where if he wants to get like the absolute maximum amount of money that he can that you're probably not going to be able to match it. But I also think that for everyone who is saying Kempers expendable, look at who else is out there cuz it's not like you're going to get a huge upgrade.
2: Yeah, I mean this is exactly what happened last year when when Grubauer walked at, you know, pretty much the very last minute it was trade Connor Timmins and a first rounder for Darcy Kemper or have nobody. So of course you're going to take the route that many were saying for once Joe Sackick didn't want to trade, but um, and did, did he pay a lot for Darcy Kemper? Yes, absolutely. The way that I see it is look, the avalanche have a salary structure. They have a certain amount they can spend on goaltending. Pavel Francouz is coming in on that same number, that evergreen 2 million that he's had the last couple of years. Um, and it goes off of what Peter just said. If, If Darcy's looking for the big number, you're going to have to look elsewhere and you might have to get creative. My prediction, even though Elliot Friedman just mentioned on his uh, recent blog that the Islanders are probably not going to trade him or don't want to, I should say. But my prediction if, if, uh, if Kemper ends up walking is doing the exact same thing, trading for one year of a pending UFA of Semyon Varlamov, who went on a run with the Islanders to the third round a couple years ago. And and doing that again because that fits your structure of that four to five million dollar range for your one A goalie with Franzuz as your one B. So, we'll see what happens.
1: But then you fall. Are you just going to keep falling into this pattern of trading a huge amount for a goalie every off season because you can't well, sign it, someone? Well, it's
2: long-term? more of it's more of it's more of a desperation. I mean, it's I mean if if yeah, you have if to, if if Kemper if Kemper can get I don't know six and a half million or six million get the Jacob Markstrom deal from another team. Um, If you're Joe Sakic, you might decide, hey, do I want to give Kemper six times six or do I want to, you know, trade a second rounder and a prospect or whatever it may be for Varlamov instead? And kind of keep kicking the can down the road until like, hey, hey, number 60, when are you going to be ready to do this thing? So uh, that's kind of the way that I see it. But uh, even if they sign Kemper, like I said, it's going to be within a salary range that makes sense for the Avs, which in my opinion is that four to five point five, four to maybe five point seven, five million for your starting goalie. With Frankie making two million, um, and then the term has to make sense as well. If if Kemper's looking for five, six, seven years, I don't think he's going to get that here.
0: I think against traditional opinion, you know, this last series just showed us that you don't need to have the most amazing Coley in the world to get it done. Right, there are more aspects that you can um, focus on that that'll help you beat the rest of the nhl and not only that it'd it be way better than any other team that uh you, you face so um just getting a goalie in here i think is important I'm, I'm with you guys you can't overpay them and just get darcy kemper just to get him back but um yeah i mean beating vasilevsky i think was the biggest mountain that they could could have climbed and they did it pretty easily so um yeah i, I feel like they just have to keep building on the building blocks that they have in place now
1: yep and he think... was excellent in games four and six when they needed him yeah and, yeah. and he had an excellent regular season. Like, let's not forget the eye injury. Like that might have changed it. Like this, his whole postseason could have looked completely different. I don't know that. Like, I, it's hard to know exactly like the severity would. of all of that. I feel like it would. I'm with you. Yeah. yeah. Like he was excellent in the regular season.
2: If there was one bit of adversity they faced in the playoffs, and maybe I'm grasping for straws here, was that injury in Game Three of the National Series, where everything is going well and you're gonna breeze through the first round again, and then Darcy gets that injury and you have to turn to Pavel and. It's like, oh, thank God, Pavel figured this out. And then Darcy had to leave again. And oh, thank God, Dar- uh, Pavel figured this out. And then we find out at the end from Jared Bednar that he was like retraining his eye two or three times per day. Like, you know, there was something still affecting him from that. But that could have been the big one. Like if Darcy was out from game three of the National Series to the end, uh, do the abs win the cup? Do they yeah. do it with do they do it with Pavel Francouz having to win 14 games? I don't. So that's so. the thing. Exactly. So that that's you know I I agree with that. But but that's kind of the thing right there. It's um Darcy. Is he you know is he the Avalanche's version of vasilevsky Absolutely not. But if you can get some stability with him and it makes sense money wise and it makes sense for him as well that like hey you know I I know what I I know what I can bring here and I know what the, what the team has. Look, the beauty of winning is people tend to want to stay. I'm not saying Kadri and Berkey and all these guys are going to take pay cuts, but like. People want to be a part of it, I should say. You know, Patrick Maroon could have gotten a, I don't know how much more money but decided to re-sign with Tampa Bay for two years at under a million dollars. Like, people want to stay on your team when you have a winning recipe, and uh, that might be something that they could entice Kemper with.
0: Yeah, and living in a beautiful city and state helps, which Colorado does have to its advantage, as does Florida. And
1: Florida, has the, always... ta- and Florida has the tax advantage, as The
2: tax too. thing helps, yeah. JJ always has to mention Florida.
0: Got to you gotta love that state what a beautiful place um i wonder if they have a total beverage down there i hope so because i need someone to deliver (laughs) my booze but everybody knows total beverage in westminster and thornton right sure total beverage has an incredible selection of beer wine and spirits but did you know that they deliver did you know they have curbside pickup available and did you know they do online wine education classes if not it's time to get to know total beverage again Stop by on 104th and Thornton or on Sheridan in Westminster and see for yourself. Or you can always find weekly deals, events, and even drink recipes online at TotalBev.com. Total Beverage, everything you need and more. Let's get into some off-season conversation now. And, uh, you know, we'll we'll go in-depth throughout the off-season, especially Arif and I. You know, Arif's just itching to break down every individual UFA and RFA, but... I guess just to keep it light here and just talk about your guys' priorities heading into the offseason. What do you think Joe Sackick needs to focus on? And um, how do you anticipate it shaking out? McKinnon Numbers, extension, terms.
2: Valerie Nichushkin. No, sorry, go ahead, Peter.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, no, that, that's exactly right. I wrote a story the other day of like listing the what the avalanche priorities should be. And it's, yeah, it's you've got to extend McKinnon. You've got to try like hell to keep Nichushkin for any sort of reasonable number. Um You've got to see if you can keep Cadre. I don't think they're going to be able to. It's going to be it's going to be tricky. Um, and when you uh, presumably aren't able to keep Cadre, then you've got to pivot and figure out who else you can who you, who you can get to to help bolster that forward group. And then you have a bunch of other questions like, what do you do uh, with the net? What do you do with def- defense? Like, who do you fill out your roster with? And I think they're in a position where, like, yeah, if you have guys like. Who are looking to chase a cup and maybe want to be a fourth liner, but have—I mean, Darren Helm did that last off. I don't know what Darren Helm's options were, but he probably, if he really wanted to be a stickler, he could have found a place to pay him more than a million for a year, you know. But he yeah. wanted to play in Colorado, and um, you can find those types of players to fill out the roster, and I think that'll be pretty key because you saw how much those guys helped this year, like that—those types of players, the Caglianos, the Helms, who are on minimum contracts but just were able to bring exactly what the Avalanche needed. So I think those are kind of my general priorities. But I think McKinnon's one, Natrushkin's two. And then you go from there in terms of figuring out Kadri and whatever your whatever second or third line forward you can bring in to help bolster that group if few walks.
2: Yeah, I think the biggest thing for the Avalanche this summer is creating a little bit of stability in those depth role play, players like we saw with Tampa Bay with, you know, I know they lost a couple of them last year and Tyler Johnson and Yanni Gord, but the Kalorns, the, uh, who's the other guy, Andre Palat, those kind of players, the, the four to five, four to five and a half million dollar wingers that are there long-term, that every single time you sit there and talk about Tampa Bay's depth, you're like, oh, and they got that guy on a good contract, and they got that guy on a good contract. So, like, the two big names that stick out to me, and one of them is an RFA, so, you know. <coughs> could be handled a little bit later down the summer. Is Val Nichushkin and Arturi Lekinen. Those are two guys you want to lock up. Hopefully, fingers crossed. If you're Joe Sakic, but I don't know if it'll if it'll come at the slow of a number for a combined ten-ish million dollars, maybe ten to eleven million dollars for the two of them combined. Um, but those are the kind of things you got to get. You know, can can you get Val Nichushkin locked up for seven years at you know four seven five to five and a half? Can you get or six years or five years? Can you get Arturi Lechynin on a five-year deal around four to four and a half million? Can you get uh, you know players like that locked up? Can you if you lose Nazem Kadri, can you go out and sign maybe an Andrew Copp for five years at five million? Can you get those depth pieces in play where you don't have to do this every single summer? I mean, Burakovsky came to the Avalanche and signed a two-year deal. Nazem Kadri came with three years. Nitrushkin came on a one-year prove-it deal and then a two-year deal. Donskoy came on a four-year deal but was gone after a couple. You want to get those, those wingers, those pieces around Miko, Nate, and Gabe signed for longer term, but it's got to be the right guys. And it feels you
0: know? like Joe, Joe Sakic has his hands full, right? Because everybody was watching that final. Everybody wants a piece of a champion because they think that automatically you know, elevates their team to being closer to a contender. So having this many free agents on his plate, I think, is going to be uh, quite the challenge for Mr. Sakic.
2: Yeah, for sure. And I think I think what Peter said is spot on. It's, it's you start with the Nathan McKinnon deal because that one, you know, even though it doesn't kick in until the following season, you can't give Nichushkin five something or like four something and Andrew Kopp or Trochek or whoever five something or even Kadri if he signs for six or so. I don't know. You can't decide those numbers on anything more than a 12 month contract until you know what McKinnon's number is. So that kind of takes takes the top uh, the top priority and then you go from there, and then right now before we wrap up, I do want to mention Elliot Friedman on his on his uh, blog that he released early this morning was um, he talked a lot about you know what the Avalanche had to do and one of the things that stuck out to me and we'll break this down more as we get to the draft and free agency is Eric Johnson who earned his cup after fifteen hard years and has partied as hard as anyone will return and is not going to retire. Uh, So he'll be back. Jack Johnson mentioned that uh, he was asked if he wanted to retire and he replied, I'm not stopping now. So a lot of question marks there with the veteran guys. EJ obviously has got one more year. You got Jack Johnson, you got Darren Helm, you got Andrew Cagliano. Are those guys going to take the Belmar and the Maroon type of contracts? Are they going to stick around? So a lot to do there for Joe Sakic, but it starts with McKinnon and then it goes to Nachushkin and then you just go down the line from there
1: yeah about about uh eric johnson i asked him earlier these postseason i asked him straight up if he would consider retiring when this is all done and he said he wants to keep going
2: yeah and and as he should he's still i mean what we saw this year was a player that was effective and and he what did he miss one game or two games he all year yeah i think one or two yeah so you know it was a player that he, he played his role and he did it well and the avalanche found the right amount of minutes for him to be effective and and he was great at it. So, you know, it sucks that he's under contract for $6 million, but that's only for one year. And when his contract comes off the books and, you know, maybe he re-signs for a cheap deal because I, I can't see him playing anywhere else, um, that's when McKinnon's going to eat up a lot of that $6 million, if not all of it. So a lot of decisions. I would say of all the UFAs, the only two that you look at and you say for sure they're gone are Josh Manson and Andre Burakovsky uh Nazem Qadri slightly right behind them, but you know the Avalanche are going to try Monday, Tuesday, this upcoming week, Wednesday, Thursday to just kind of get a feel out. And then once they realize if or when they realize that they're just not going to be able to meet the range, then you move on to the next part.
0: Yeah, I mean, other teams are already making some moves, right? Uh, Making some trades. We saw Tampa Bay and Nashville swap a couple guys today. So, you know, Joe's already back to work, back in the office, picking up the phone. Um, With that, I guess let's just throw some shit at the wall here for some potential free agents. Just give me a name or two that you think they might be targeting.
2: Andrew Cops a big one for me, and the reason why I think about him is uh, the idea that the Rangers— the Rangers could be the one playoff team that makes a big splash for Nazem Kadri. So if the Rangers make a splash for Nazem Kadri, that obviously means they're going to get, they're going to let Ryan Strom walk and they're going to let Andrew Kopp walk, but they seem to have the ability to give Nazem Kadri the crazy kind of money. And and, and of all the teams that might be able to do that, they seem to be the one that has the playoff, you know, positioning that, that, that can be successful with him. So uh, Andrew Kopp's the one that sticks out to me that if, cadre walks and cop doesn't resign with the rangers that's a name the avalanche i've liked in the past and, and around the deadline according to some of the insiders and i could see him being the big name
1: yeah that's a good one i don't love speculating but i think i mean paul stasny is uh, a guy who maybe maybe yeah. he takes a, a cheaper deal because he wants a chance to win a cup i don't know that's speculation though so we love speculating here Peter. i don't like it. speculating that's <laughs> not my thing i report
0: <laughs> all right fair enough fair enough so Two quick things I want to get to before we wrap it up here. Um, since you guys are the writers here, I just want you to put a title on the season real quick. So fill in the blank here for me. This was the season
2: of meeting your expect, Getting over the hump. It's, it's getting over the yeah. hump. Yeah, that, that's what I was trying to get. Love meeting it. your expectations, getting over the hump. Uh, you know, checking off the box of not failing, I guess.
0: Perfect. I love it. And then, Peter, I saw the athletic book coming out uh, available at barnes and nobles give us a quick pitch on that and then uh, we'll get out of here
1: cool. yeah it's just uh it's just a collection of our stories throughout the year and uh yeah a lot of hard work from our staff uh, went into it so i think it's it's not necessarily new content but it's a cool like collector's item and and way to to read through the season and has a lot of good pictures and stuff
2: yeah, I love the one page of the uh, table of contents. That's by Peter Baugh. 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 By Peter Sean Gentile. Yeah, there's one in there, yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, (laughs) nobody was closer to the beat than Peter, so, you know, it's well-deserved. So thank you guys for an awesome season here on the podcast, an awesome postseason as well. You guys are awesome to work with, and, uh, yeah, obviously we do it for the listeners, and they're equally awesome. So thanks to everybody who listened to it. Final thoughts before we uh, head out here.
2: Hell of a year. The the biggest trade deadline acquisition was Peter Ball joining the podcast. (laughs) Hey, it was a a pleasure.
1: It was a lot of fun. Yeah. So
2: we're going to work on a contract extension. We'll get back to you guys (laughs) by July (laughs) 13th.
0: Right on, guys. So thanks for hanging out with us. If you made it this far in the podcast, bless your pretty little heart. Let's make hockey for everyone. And we out you.